Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Easter weekend has turned decidedly chilly this morning as the government prepares to launch itself yet again on another global attack on our freedoms, our choices and our ability to return life to normal. There's talk of vaccine passports to attend sporting events, mass testing to enable converts uh, and concerts to go ahead, traffic light systems to control which countries we can visit. All as coronavirus infections are at their lowest levels since last September when we weren't even in a lot. Lockdown, ladies and gentlemen, this morning I will be firmly stating the case for freedom against the voices of state control. I will be championing the rights of those businesses that have been smothered by constant shutdowns and I'll be asking for your support to beat these political and risk-averse manoeuvres from a Prime Minister who seems to be scared of his own shadow. Enough, ladies and gentlemen, is enough. We've so far won a small victory over pubs and restaurants, but there is still much more to be done. So please join the fight today if you haven't already, because it may well be that we have scored a little victory by making sure that they don't require COVID passports to get inside a pub or a restaurant. But mark my words, they might come after it through the back door, and I'll explain why in a moment. First up this morning is Paul Bristow, one of some 40 Tory MPs who have pledged to vote against the imposition of vaccine passports. There's no law that says this has to happen. And as for mass testing, here's an idea about mass testing MPs twice a week to see whether they're competent, to see whether they're consistent, to see whether they're useful, and to see whether they're actually value for money. Four yellow cards in a month, and they're deselected. I wonder if they'd go for that idea for mass testing. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we're also joined by Peter Hitchens, Man on Sunday columnist, with his take on where we are this week as Boris Johnson continues with his attempt to convince us that he's getting us out of the lockdown. And we'll be speaking to a population health scientist about whether there's even any point to it all. 0344 499 1000. Also with the news that we have to turn down the central heating and invest 18 grand in a new heating system for the house, we'll be asking, uh, why? Also, good luck up in Scotland today where it's going to be minus 5 degrees Celsius. You certainly want to turn the heating up, don't you, rather than down. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. Uh, What have you been up to? What have you been seeing? What have you been doing? What have you been told? You've been celebrating Easter, I bet. And not all of you will have been obeying all the rules either. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, we are, of course, live streaming on YouTube and on Twitter, so do get over there if you want to watch us as well as listening to us. The growing army of Talk Radio listeners and viewers uh, is really quite extraordinary, quite remarkable. The year we have had has been incredible, largely because we've tried to articulate what it is that your concerns are. We've tried to ask the questions that you would want us to ask, and as a result, uh, we are probably the most trusted radio station in the land. Let's talk to Paul Bristow, Conservative MP for Peterborough. Paul, a very good morning to you. Happy Easter. 
good morning, Mike, and happy Easter to you too. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. It is Easter Monday. There are still people enjoying their family time together, which uh, I'm sure they've uh, they've they've enjoyed over the past couple of days. And it's been rather warm. Uh, you're one of uh, around about 40 or so Tory MPs who said that you're not in favour of vaccine passports. Tell us why. Well, I think it's really important to reiterate at the start that the vaccine programme has gone incredibly well and everybody, once they're given the opportunity to have a vaccine, must take it. And I am very pleased about the apparent relaxation on pubs and restaurants, but we'll find out a little bit later. But I've got three really main concerns because I think this is unfair on young people. We've already been hard hit by this pandemic and they've not really had the chance to be vaccinated yet. So I've got real concerns there. I've also got real concerns about the burden we're going to be placing on hospitality, again, who have been very, very hard, hard hit by the, uh, by the pandemic, but hopefully we'll see some good news on pubs and restaurants. But more than that, this is not necessarily a very British thing to do, to be asking people to carry around vaccine passports and proof of this, that and the other. And if this is our way out of this, and if this is the way of reopening our nighttime economy, then how long is this going to last? What form it's going to take? But we'll hear we'll hear from the Prime Minister tonight, and I'm eagerly awaiting that. Yes, I mean, my problem with a lot of it, Paul, is that I've been saying for many weeks and months that there has to be a, a tipping point for this government to look at this whole situation differently, rather than from seeing it uh, sort of from behind a curtain and, and pulling the curtain just to have a quick look to see how bad it is out there, to take a view on how small the number of infections is now, to take a view on how densely um, uh, uh, protected the, the, the population is from the vaccine and from having the uh, coronavirus in the first place and to literally kind of just look at it differently because otherwise this whole idea of covid passports for this covid passports for that will never really end because it will always be around there'll always be some reason to look for more protection but you know there are lots of people who walk into pubs on a daily basis and have done for many many decades who know that it's not a risk averse atmosphere you know, any number of things can happen. And, and, and you cannot literally work out through administration and through law how to protect everyone. Well, I guess, Mike, you're looking forward to, like I am, to leaning at the bar and ordering a pint and the guy opposite not necessarily knowing my name, not necessarily knowing my medical records or my medical status. But, you know, it, it is an evolving picture. I mean, I do understand that. And I do understand that we need to get back as, as much as we can to normality. And there are tools to get us back. For example, the everyone has been encouraged to take two tests a week. And I think that's uh, an incredibly positive thing, actually. But I, do I, I don't agree, Paul. No, I'm sorry. I don't agree. Why should people who have got nothing wrong with them test themselves twice a week? Well, because I think that, well, it's entirely up to that individual to decide whether they want to test themselves or not. It's just another tool in our way out of this, like the vaccine rollout programme. I think that's been a, a remarkable success. But where I do agree with you, Mike, I think, is if we look back at the start of this pandemic and we thought to ourselves, look, this, we, I think we said three to six weeks to try and flatten the curve, yeah. to try and um, uh, relieve the pressure on the NHS. And if you told us then a year later we'd be in this situation, I think people would have been... Uh, all thought I would start raving mad if I, if I turned around and said we were going to introduce something like a vaccine passport. And I've got real concerns about it because, mm. as I say, I just don't think it's a very British thing to do. Well, one of the problems that people have, and I speak to people, as, as I'm sure you do, Paul, on a daily basis, is that the reasoning for every lockdown that we've had has been different. 
And the reasoning for every slowdown of the opening up of the economy has been different. Uh, at the moment, for example, we're led to believe that we have to be careful of variants coming from abroad. However, Boris Johnson is going to tell us which countries we can go to and how long we have to come back uh, and quarantine from. But nobody's making any plans, for example, about what happens to people when they come back from various different countries. They're all going to be mixing in the exact same departure and arrivals area whenever they get into to Britain. So, you know, there doesn't appear to be a great deal of logic. And we do know from the past that some of the policies that the government have come up with, they've admitted later, were sort of done on the hoof and they didn't really have any scientific knowledge or data for them either. Well, I think the key to our battle against the variants is actually our genome um, science industry here in the UK. We've got a fantastic um, ability to spot variants when they come. And I think think 40% of all the um, genome experts and technology and progress is actually made in this country. And that is our way out of, of, of combating that particular situation, along with the vaccination program. I do understand the need for some restrictions, but the need, the vaccine program, if it's if it's there for anything, is to try and get us back to normality, away from those restrictions. And you know, it's incredibly frustrating. I agree with you that it seems that every time we make a little bit of progress, there's a new um, thing to overcome. But I'm hopeful that we've got that victory on pubs and restaurants. And let's just wait and see what the prime minister says a bit later tonight. But as you say, I'm very uncomfortable about the impact on young people on hospitality uh, and our way of life. Well, for example, if you're going to say to people that they need to be vaccinated in order to get inside, um, I don't know, the crucible to watch the snooker, are they also going to be wearing masks? Is that going to be the guidance or are they going to be taking the masks off? Are they going to be able to sit next to each other? You know, it seems to me that, you know, it's it's belt and braces time when this disease does not harm 99% of people in the country. You know, everybody's sad that 126,000 people have been said to have died from it, but an awful lot of people have not died from it. A lot more people. Well, my, the plan was to ensure that we vaccinated those in priority groups one to nine, and that would eliminate 99% of we've the done, risk And we've of, done all that, haven't we? And uh, we're well on track to doing that. Uh, and I think that's what the, uh, the focus should be on. And that's what I think. And the focus then should be, once we've done that, getting back to normality. And so I've got a lot of sympathy with what you're saying. Yeah, but getting back to normality does not include being tested every time you want to go anywhere uh, and being asked if you've had a vaccine every time you want to go anywhere. That is not normality to me. Well, I think we're already uh, testing uh, people who uh, work in care homes twice a week. We're already testing those who uh, travel and their families. We're already testing school children. Um, so extending that choice, and that's the word choice, to the rest of the population, I think is, is I mean, I know you disagree with me, but I think it's pretty solid, like the vaccine programme as a way to restoring our restrictions, um, restoring our freedom and getting rid of these restrictions. What well, I want to, to be see, honest, I I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure, Paul, whether you can justify testing all the children in this country. I mean, how, what, what is that achieving exactly? Well, it's ensuring that the spread of the virus, I'm told that's ensuring that the spread of the virus, we don't get that um, peak has happened before. How? When, when, how when, is it, though? When, no, but how, how is it, Paul? How, how is it doing when, that exactly? Well, I think what's clear, what's absolutely clear, is that part of the peak in the last time, and the reason for the second and third lockdown, was the spread in schools. That's absolutely clear. And if we can prevent that in any way, I think that's got to be a positive thing. And like the vaccine programme, I think rapid testing and getting as many people as possible to test or given the choice to test is a way to end these wretched restrictions that you and I hate. Yeah, but every time we're told that this will end these wretched restrictions, guess what? These wretched restrictions seem to carry on. The vaccine was supposed to be a game changer. You might remember somebody saying that. You might remember somebody saying there will never be vaccine passports. Also a member of the cabinet. People are getting sick to death, Paul, of being promised things which are not then delivered. And I think that's the problem. um, 
on when it comes to COVID passports, I've got a huge amount of sympathy with that point. I think they're unfair on young people. I think they're going to be burdensome on hospitality. We've already been hard hit. Uh, and as I say, I think we need a lot of detail about how long they're going to last for and in what form. Yeah. And also what we do know about testing is that it hasn't always been reliable. Certain types of tests are more reliable than others. And what we also know is that if you're testing yourself, it's much more likely to be unreliable. Um, well, I remember when I had um, my lateral flow test, it wasn't only unreliable, it was uncomfortable, but thankfully it came back negative. But look, I do genuinely think... Well, yeah, but do you want, will you be testing yourself twice a week? Uh, I'll, get, I'll be getting my wife to do it, I think. Than me. Listen, I don't want to hear but about no. your private life, Paul. That's enough of that. But here's the point. You know, why would you voluntarily give yourself an uncomfortable experience twice a week? And who's paying for this, by the way? Are, are we paying for it? Well, I think I think the government will be paying for it, yeah. But well, no, I think that, the government no, the government doesn't have any money. The taxpayer, the, tax the taxpayer is who I, provides I the money. Yeah. Well, look, I, I genuinely think um, on on testing and on vaccine rollout, these are two keys to getting rid of these restrictions that you and you and I both hate. And so, I've got no problem with it. I think we need to open that choice to testing to as many people as possible. Well, I mean, as I said, it doesn't appear to me that testing all the children in school has made a penny worth of difference because the fact remains at the moment that the virus appears to be in retreat. And when the virus is in retreat, I'm never sure why it's in retreat. The government, of course, will tell me that it's in retreat because of government policy. I disagree because it suddenly, it suddenly happened in, in December. On the 18th of December, it was discovered there was this new variant which was more transmissible that nobody, even the sage scientists, didn't know was out there. And then suddenly that came and went, and January came and went, and we're still in the same lockdown we were in in January when a 1,000 people a day were dying, and there's no real reason for it. Well, I think it's in retreat because of the success of the vaccine programme, because something that's not talked about often enough is the success in the vaccine about reducing transmission. I think that's why our uh, rate is... is, is so low or reducing in a way that it is and of course of the sacrifices of people during lockdown which is um has been very difficult on a lot of people and of course if across the pond in europe and we should take no pleasure from this that their rates are rising france are about to enter a third lockdown yes because they're flapping because they're they're flapping their vaccination program well back by and large it's because one they're getting the variant that we had in january and two they haven't got enough vaccines to stop it but if we've got the evidence that the vaccines are helping why is nothing changing well, the things are changing in the sense that we've got the uh, restrictions are opening up, hopefully on Monday. We're, we're able to go into pub beer gardens, get a haircut, which I desperately need. But I share a lot of the frustrations that we're not doing this uh, faster. I want us to follow the data. If the data suggests that we're doing better, then I would like to see us. Yes, but, um, Sasha, but Sasha, Sasha Lord, as you know, is, is going to be in court tomorrow uh, asking the government yeah. to prove why hospitality cannot open up properly on April the 12th, and why it has to wait until May the 17th, when quite clearly non-essential shops are going to be open first. And he hasn't had a response to that. And again, it comes back to the argument that the government says they're using data, not dates. But quite frankly, they're not using data anymore because the data is against their policy. Well, we'll wait and see what the Prime Minister says uh, tonight. He's going to tell us, hopefully, that the we're on track to reopen pubs um, from the 12th of April and reopen uh, non-essential hospitality. I'm looking forward to that in Peterborough. I can assure you of that. Um, but look, I do understand the concerns that everybody has. If, if the data and infection rates remain low, um, then I can appreciate people will want to open up quicker and there is some frustration. But look, all I'll say is that we've got this roadmap that argument's been made. I've lost that argument. Um, and so we've got this roadmap. So let's stick to it. It's going to be a gradual reopening. 
Uh, let's just make sure there's no rollback on that because that's the most important thing. And test and trace, which was a complete disaster last time around, is apparently going to be hardened this time around, where they're going to be demanding that pubs take names and phone numbers for everybody that's there. Otherwise, they're going to be fined £4,000. Now, that is clearly not really um, actionable, is it? Well, was it a disaster, Mike? I mean, there's a lot of... Well, the, the, government, has said it, the government said it didn't work. I call that a disaster when they've spent well, £40 I billion I on it. I don't, I don't know about that. I think, uh, I think uh, Test and Trace uh, did a remarkable job in... Remo- well, did a significant job in removing potential people from the general population infecting one another. You can sit there and It say, also removed you know, a lot of people from the general... Government. Well, it also removed a lot of people from the general population who shouldn't have been removed because there was nothing wrong with them. Well, what it did do was reduce the rates of transmission and ultimately it will have saved lives. So, look, I've got a, I think the test, track and trace was a, uh, a weapon in saving lives and get, getting us back to normal. And we're, we're here now. We're doing that. And it's the vaccination programme um, which is helping us do that. And with a, a good testing system, which we've announced today, two, testing, um, two tests a week, I think that's our way to get rid of these ghastly restrictions that I know everybody hates. Well, the government's test and trace programme failed repeatedly to meet targets for delivering test results and contacting infected people, despite costs rising to twenty-two billion pounds. That's a report from the National Audit Office. I don't know whether you haven't seen that. Oh, I have seen it, and I have seen the criticism of the programme. But I think it would be unfair to turn around and say that it had no impact whatsoever on reducing transmission and wasn't part of our battle against the virus. There's no doubting mistakes have been made. There's no doubting that we could have done things better. And it's easy to look back and, and say those things. For me, Mike, what I'm interested it's in... It's actually is not getting... easy to look back because I wish they had worked, Paul. But what I'm concerned about is that this government keeps making mistake after mistake after mistake and then saying, sorry, we made a mistake. I mean, that's not the act of somebody with a brain, is it? No, I mean, I think that's pretty unfair, to be honest with you. I think, look, there's been bumps in the road and there'll be further bumps in the road, I'm sure. I just hope not too many. Yeah, but what what we don't want to do, Paul, is give this government the right to ask and demand personal, private medical information in order to go about your daily life. This is a democracy we live in. And you have to remember as well, by the way, that you guys are elected by us. You work for us. We do not work for you. Well, Mike, that's why I'm sceptical about vaccine passports in pubs. And I've got a lot of sympathy with some of the arguments you've made on that. As I say, I think it would be unfair on young people who have not had the chance to be vaccinated. And I think that's the key key one there on our hospitality. And it's obviously not a very British thing to do. But on testing and on the vaccination programme, I think these are our key and our way out of this. And we should be positive about those two things. Yes, but but if the way out is paved with uh, intentions which don't ever happen, and if the way out is paved with ridiculous restrictions on what we're allowed and not allowed to do. I mean, when the police start turning up in a church in Ballum and telling people to disperse on Good Friday, despite the fact that actually they got it wrong and you can gather in a place of worship as long as you are uh, uh, adhering to various coronavirus virus safeguards i think we've got a problem yeah that was pretty uncomfortable to watch i it I, was I, yeah i mean they've got a difficult job the police i'm not i'm not envious of them uh, but that was a pretty pretty difficult thing to watch um uh, but look you know i think they're doing a the point job. is they shouldn't have done it paul should they no no i kind of i think operationally there are some questions to answer that mm, yeah. i agree with that okay um but look i think they're doing a fine job dealing with some of the people where Hive on the streets of Bristol, London, and Cardiff, and all sorts of other things at, at the moment. Yeah, I agree. Kill the bill I agree, and I, I, and I think they're absolutely within their rights to, to crack a few heads if that's what they need to do, because the, the the people turn violent on them. I think that's absolutely fine, and the people of this country would support that, but they won't support some of the daft stuff they've been doing. 
yeah, it was uncomfortable to watch um, the the Ballam Church thing. I've, I've got a lot of sympathy, but they've got a difficult job to do. Um, but I think operationally, the police need to perhaps be held to account for some of the more draconian things that they've done. Because I mean, but it's difficult, isn't it? On one hand, they've got these restrictive practices and restrictive rules to enforce, and then politicians like me turn around and have a pop at them when they do. So you know, I've I've although it is uncomfortable to watch, I've got a lot of sympathy with them. But I, I do think. Um, Cressida Dick, certainly on the Clapham Vigil, got, has got questions to answer, and I'm sure she will do so in due course. Yes, listen, there's no there's no doubt that it's been difficult. A lot of people also say to me, Paul, that it's all right for you MPs, you're all living high in the hog, you've got great salaries, you've got expenses, you don't have to go to work every day, um, and you're not really been uh, affected by this pandemic and the lockdown at all, which is why you're very likely uh, to be in support of all of the measures that get brought in. What do you say to them? Well, I've got a lot of sympathy with that view because I've got a an inbox and uh, I see very, very, uh, I see people struggling with lockdown. Not everybody's got a happy home. Not everyone's got a big house with a lovely garden. Not everyone's got a, a nice family to be with. And that longing for human contact, for socialising, um, I've got a lot of sympathy with. Some people, if they don't go to work, they don't eat. Uh, and I've got a lot of sympathy with that. Peter was full of people like that so and that's why i've always been on the more conservative side of this argument uh, i always i want to see evidence for restrictions i want to see as open up as quickly as possible because i see the very human impacts mike that these restrictions and lockdowns have had on my constituents sure and how does the voting work on this because uh, you are amongst a group of people 70 odd uh, labor lib dems and tories who are going to vote against the government and against vaccine passports i mean if labor actually whipped them uh, their party into this they could defeat the government well i think first and foremost the government need to know the strength of feeling that MPs have on this issue. Uh, I think you'll have seen some of that around um, the confirmation that we won't be having COVID passports for pubs and, and hospitality. Um, I'm hoping that that strength of feeling um, will continue and the government are able to uh, look at the this COVID passport and perhaps think it's not a wise thing to be rolling out uh, in the present form or the form. Well, we'll see what the Prime Minister says tonight. But so are you, against, are you against COVID passports in, in every area then? I'm against COVID passports in principle, yes. Yeah, good. Paul, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Paul Bristow, MP, uh, Conservative MP for Peterborough there, against vaccine passports in principle. So am I. I don't think they work. I don't think they're worthwhile. I don't think they're worth the money. And I really don't think that they are actionable uh, and enforceable and workable in any way, shape or form. I can understand people who run events saying, oh, we'd like to make sure that when you come to a football match, it's safe. Oh, really? That's a first. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We spoke to Paul Bristow there just before the news uh, MP for Peterborough. Uh, he's against the idea of vaccine passports, uh, but he is for mass testing. I'm not certain that mass testing is necessarily the answer either. We're going to talk now to Angela Raffle, honorary senior lecturer at the University of Bristol Medical School, Department of Population Health Sciences. Angela, very good morning to you. Happy Easter. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. You've seen um, uh, and, 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 and been involved, I'm sure, with, with, with some of the mass testing programmes that have gone on before. You've, you've written as well about how um, mass testing only works if it's done properly. What do you mean by that? Well, testing is a really important part of how we um, cope with the pandemic, and it's valuable if it's done well. But the approach to planning, delivering and evaluating how we've done it in the UK has been really painful to witness. And why is that? Well, I mean, if I draw a contrast, so 
imagine if in our approach to vaccines we decided number one to completely ignore people who knew how to design and evaluate new vaccines number two call a bunch of private companies with little or no experience offer them billions of pounds to just get some new vaccines doesn't matter if they work and use them on as many people as possible as quickly as possible and then hide any data um, come up with lots of meaningless sound bites to convince the public that the vaccines are our only hope. And if anyone raises concerns, just tell them the modelling shows the vaccines will work. Well, that's, that's what's happened with testing. And it's such a lost opportunity, and we really need a rethink. We need to look at... So are you saying that all the testing about. that the government did and has done since last March has been erroneous? Most of it has been a waste of public money on a Blimey. scale previously unimaginable. But that I mean, means then, surely, we can't trust the results of that testing. Well, the, the NHS laboratories have spent decades and decades um, learning how to do really high-quality testing. The Lighthouse laboratories were set up sort of shrouded in secrecy and a big rush, and... The contracts with those laboratories haven't guaranteed the quality. And I don't know if you saw the recent BBC Panorama programme, Undercover Inside a Lighthouse Lab. I haven't. It's really worth a watch. Um, and if you're someone like me who's spent their life around quality assurance programmes and around laboratories, it's just the polar opposite of how we should be looking after the public. Mm. But my worry now, though, Angela, given what you've just told me, is that if the government's policies were being basically produced on the basis of all of these tests and what the results of those tests were, and you're saying the testing system was was hopeless, then uh, where is the evidence then for the government to have done what they did? It feels like we've done well, really well on vaccines. We've yeah, I think everyone agrees on that. We've done really well on treatments as well, you know, so mm -hmm. the chief medical officer says we took this hard decision at the beginning to do proper evaluations. And I just think testing, the government was so keen right back last last summer on this moonshot proposal um, to test everyone. Right. And, I mean, I don't know whether it's... I mean, <laughs> I'd love to hear your ideas. Is it just because... The people really behind government are classically educated old Etonians and, you know, are easily swayed by the appeal of a test for everybody. I, I don't know. I don't think it's that particularly. I think the problem they've got in government is that they have um, an awful lot of people advising them who have a view about risk. And I think they're not those types of people who are willing to, to, to take any risks. I think they're terrified of a public inquiry. They're terrified of doing something wrong. So as a result, everything they do uh, is done through that kind of prism. You know, when you have people telling you that uh, you have to be careful how... I mean, they've more or less admitted that they were sort of nudging people into particular behavioural directions in order not to tell them the real truth of what was going on. There's pretty much evidence to suggest that they did know that this would take longer than three weeks to sort out, but they didn't want to tell anybody that at the beginning. And now here we are, where we've got a population, an awful lot of whom don't believe a word they say anymore. Yeah. I That's think, the trouble, I think. I think there's a lot of truth in what you say. And for, for me, you know, for the listeners... The, um, I mean, I know that some people just love being tested. We found that in studies. Even if you say to people, we've got a test which yeah. is 
which we've got no evidence to back it. Do you still want it? And mm. some people just say, yeah. yes, please. Right. And, and, I mean, you've said something else which I think is important as well, that self-testing is really not the most reliable way to do it. And that's understandable. I mean, I'm, I'm currently baffled as to why, for example, my children, who are not currently at school, are being told that they should take two tests a week while they're not at school um, in order to replace uh, them, in order to tell people whether they were positive when they were off school. It doesn't make any sense. It, does, it doesn't make sense. And we have, I mean... So the Public Accounts Committee have looked at Test and Trace and said, this needs to be the cornerstone now and in the future. It seems to have had no impact. Mm. It's cost a fortune. There's a bunch of amazing scientists who do something called a Cochrane review of all the tests available. They keep it updated. Their recent uh, publication was very recent. And that showed the data we have on these tests in people without symptoms amounts to only a few hundred people. Right. Um, when we do, you know, in the national screening programmes, when we do any self-testing, we would do such careful study to make sure that the tests perform well when used by individuals themselves. We haven't done those studies. Right. You read the manufacturer's leaflet on the Innova test, for example. It says the person taking the test must be fully trained. Every time you get a new person doing the test, they have to do the control negative sample, the tr control positive sample, before they do any normal samples on mm. human subjects. Right. So, so what should they do, Angela? How should they make this work? Because, I mean, you can't imagine, I presume, lines and lines of people on, on public streets queuing up every single day to get one of two tests a week, can you? Um, I... It feels to me that the public have to really realise what a disaster the testing programme has been. And we need to get together the people who really understand how to do this well without blaming anybody mm. and design a test and trace that is fit for purpose. Sure. That's linked in with your GP practice, your local social services, so that we have a pathway which means no matter how mild your symptoms, you can talk to a human being on the phone, decide if you need a test, get high quality yeah. test, and then get support if you need to. Yeah. So in other words, no point testing everyone. There's no point testing everyone. It's a, it's a pure distraction yeah. to try and save face for the government and to get rid of this mountain of lateral flow tests that they bought many months ago. Yeah. Let me read you this uh, a text tweet I've got from Carol who says, this is an extract from an email my son's college sent last week. Students tested in college, 3,285, all negative. Students testing at home, 305, all negative. Staff testing at home, 448, all negative. So you kind of go, well, OK, what was the point of that exactly? Absolutely. And, I mean, John Deeks, who's written a lot, who's really sort of crammed a la cram in terms of test evaluation, he said maybe we're spending more than £120,000 just to find one case, and that case is probably a false positive. Yes. That's the other problem, that, you know, we know that some of the testing results haven't been all that accurate, and so I think you're right. You're the first person, Angela, that has made any sense of this that I've ever spoken to in a year. <laughs> I mean, that's how terrible the situation is, right? There are so few people telling the truth. There are so few people... I mean, I found out, for example, that in one particular area of Sussex, where I've got a friend that lives there... Um, the reason that the um, the death rates were so high at the height of the of the pandemic was because there was an awful lot of retirement homes and care homes in that particular area, and, but that was never explained, and so people were sort of terrified for their lives. They didn't know why there was such a high rate of death, and that was the reason. And 
And what you're touching on there, Mike, is that most people actually busy running the local response Mm. are so busy and are so uh, constrained in what they're allowed to say to the press that very few people are allowed to be honest. And I'm very fortunate in that I have a university boss who believes in being honest. Good. Um, I wish there were more people like you. Well, I mean, if I was still, until quite recently, I was, you know, I worked for the Director of Public Health within Bristol City Council. Were I still in that paid post, I would not be allowed to talk to you today. Mm. And so there are thousands of professionals tearing their hair out at what's going on. But in effect, they're silenced. Yeah. Yeah, and that really troubles me more than anything, really, because it's not so much what you want to say, it's the fact that you're not allowed to say anything. And there's also this very legitimate fear of undermining public confidence in the response to the pandemic. Yes. But sooner or later, the truth will out. This also, also you, are, you, don't, you, don't, you don't kind of increase public confidence by being, uh, so, shall we say, dismissive of, of people who disagree or with a different opinion, or by being in some way authoritarian about what people are allowed to do. Absolutely. And and in, in a way, we've learned that the hard way in the UK screening programme. So I first got involved in the 1980s when the spiker screening programme was really causing untold harm, but mm. nobody was speaking about it. Right. And I made myself extremely unpopular by saying we need to be honest. Um, and it took 10 years. But honesty then became the watchword of the UK National Screening Programme. We don't even have a communications team. We have an information team. Mm. We offer screening. The only ones we recommend are ones where you're helping others, like, for example, antenatal HIV screening, where you're preventing the baby from being born with HIV. Um, Honesty is so important. It really is, absolutely. Well, Angela, thank you so much for your honesty and thank you for talking to us and explaining uh, some of the things that nobody has yet so far explained. Angela Raffle there from the Bristol Medical School Department of Population Health Sciences. Absolutely fascinating what she had to say. I think we may have to get her back on uh, to talk through more of this because, quite frankly, the idea that this mass testing is going to somehow be a solving agent for people to get back to what's called normal. I've got this from Dave, who says, I have to say, the government letting me have two tests a week if I want them means I will be able to get back to normal and attend music festivals and live music again. Let's not deny it's a step to normal. No, it isn't, Dave. Why are you taking a test if there's nothing wrong with you? Why should you be forced to take a test in order to go to a concert? Why should you have to prove that you don't have something in order to walk through a door? Maybe you should have to uh, tell people whether or not you've got any convictions for assault. Maybe you should be told, uh, you, sh- you should be revealing whether or not you've ever suffered from any sexually transmitted diseases before you go into a pub because it might be that you should be clean before you meet anybody. Is that the world you want to live in? Because it ain't the world I want to live in. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, say a very happy Easter Monday to Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? 
Well, it's so far so good. Good. Uh, but, uh, not particularly optimistic. Were you uh, able? Were you able to celebrate uh, any sort of uh, Easter religious fest without interference from Her Majesty's uh, police? Well, there is interference in everything you do. I don't want to go to technicalities with this, but uh, actually to to attend any church, uh, particularly a service of Holy Communion, which is supposed to be obligatory at Easter, at uh, under current regulations means that it's completely abnormal, um, that you can't do it properly. Uh, so I tend to hang back a bit. I try to go to church every week uh, as a matter of course anyway, but there are a lot of things that are, are not... Uh, not, not as far as I'm concerned, uh, fully free. Yes, uh, I do get the strong sense that the uh, that the churches are wor- worshiping government rather than God, and it puts me off. Yeah, so well, no, I, really, think, I, I think. Well, you and I both. I mean, I'm still put off from the idea of travelling. I mean, my main concern is to go and see my mother in America, and for her, I will make all sorts of sacrifices, which may include wearing a mask on a plane. But I'm really not in the business of wanting to go on holiday where you have to put a mask on in the airport, then continue to wear it for hours on end on a plane, and then continue to wear it until you get out of the airport the other end. It's just not for me, really. Where would be the pleasure in that? I'm not particularly wild about holidays anyway. I've done a lot of travelling in my life, and it's a different thing. But I think a lot of us, particularly for the purpose of family reunion, uh, because many of us have been separated from close family for very long periods, Mm -hmm. would do all kinds of things which we find repulsive uh, one way or another. Although there is always that group of people who are totally Simon Pure who will then come onto the social media to harangue us as traitors and hypocrites <laughs> and all kinds of other things for being human. Uh, I, I, I did with the fanatical dogma of when I was a Trotskyist, I don't appreciate it anymore, but there's still some of it about it. Mm. It's actually looking back over the past 12 months and more, I think one of the most grievous bits of damage done to the case against shutting down the country and strangling the economy. Uh, was done by the the, the the people I call the the, the lizardists, the, the the ultra fanatics who got it all mixed up with five G and Bill Gates and all the rest of it, who did immense harm uh, to a very good cause, and contributed, in my view, to its defeat. The fact that the opinion polls show constant high support uh, for the most ludicrous measures ever taken by any government has a lot to mm. do with the fact that so many people identified the cause of liberty with nutcases, and, and still they persist. Mm. I'm sick of them. I wish they'd go away. If we, if there is any hope of recovering from this, the presence of these people on what I regard as my side is nothing but a nuisance. Mm. And clearly it's um, uh, very difficult to persuade people who equate having a driving licence with having some kind of COVID passport to go to football as the same thing. It's very difficult to convince these people that actually that's not in any way the same thing. Well, of course, it's. I mean, the, the whole. We, what has happened is that we have become a country where we live by permission of the government. Yeah. That's that's what's happened, and it won't just be. It, it won't just be this. And of course, it, 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 in many cases, there'll be no specific regulation saying that you have to do such and such a thing. But there are so many frightened people in the retail trade and in the uh, and, in, and in the hospitality trade and on public transport and everywhere else, that even if there's no actual regulation enforcing these things, it will be increasingly difficult to go into shops, to go into pubs and restaurants, to travel on on public transport without submitting to all kinds of checks, even if there's no law that specifically says so. And there will be employers who will demand all kinds of things from their employees, which are actually beyond the law, but, but which they will be able to do because of this atmosphere. Until we actually manage to break the fear, 
and get people to take a rational look at this. Uh, that is what is going to happen, I'm afraid. Yeah, I had a very interesting guest on this morning. I don't know if you were able to listen to Angela Raffle, um, who's a bit, of, bit of an expert in... You might want to look at her, uh, her her Twitter. She's a very interesting woman, studies um, testing on a mass scale, says basically to me this morning that the entire government programme of testing since last year has been basically worse than useless. So not only have they tested in the wrong way, not only have many of the test results been wrong... But also the policy then made on those test results uh, is more or less ridiculous. And so she's now saying if they're going to embark once again on a testing uh, of the population, which is going to be twice a week for everyone, it's it's doomed to failure because it doesn't give you any information or useful data that you can use. Well, it's never made all that much sense to me. I think if you could devise a means by which every person in the population could regularly be tested uh, accurately, for the presence of disease all the time, uh, then perhaps there might be some use to it. But there is no such possibility. There aren't enough people to do the testing. Uh, people can't be expected to test themselves accurately. Uh, the, the the equipment necessary and the facilities for reading the test will never exist. So all that was ever going to happen with mass testing was that we were going to give ourselves a false impression of the prevalence of the disease. Mm. And the, the, one of the crucial uh, triumphs of the, of the propaganda of the lockdown fanatics has been the way in which they've persuaded so much of the media and so many people in the public to refer to positive tests as cases. Yeah. They're not cases. And, and this fundamental difference is so crucial to an understanding of what's going on. And, and there is also a simple rule, seek and ye shall find. When the government set out to start sending test teams into various cities, one thinks particularly of the, the instance of Leicester some months ago, of course they were going to find some instances if you test for it. But does that mean that Leicester is a hotbed of COVID? Or does it mean that Leicester is a hotbed of testing? In my view, it means a hotbed of testing. And, if you, you, and until we have which we can never have, a 100% coverage of regular accurate testing. That's what all this is going to be, a completely partial uh, view of what's going on, revealing almost nothing, because I have never seen, uh, and maybe you have, or maybe somebody else who could call into your program have, uh, any figures on how many of those who tested positive have gone on to develop symptoms of COVID. Yes, well, I was constantly asking towards the end of last year for figures from um, the NHS for people who had been admitted to hospital with COVID and who had then been released at a later date. And that's very difficult to find as well. But by far and away, the majority of people who went into hospital with COVID came out alive. They did not die uh, and they did not suffer from long COVID. They might not have had a very pleasant time, but they all came out. Well, we have been the, the victims of a statistical blizzard, which has concealed from us the meaning of a lot of the figures which have been thrown at us. And I, I, I still hope, increasingly against hope, that there might one day be a, be a proper, impartial, thorough inquiry into this, which will demonstrate what actually happened. I, the, the way in which statistics can be made to show, or not to show, but to suggest things which are either not true or exaggerated is well known to anybody who studies mm. the subject. And, and some years ago, I was in a controversy about statistics over uh, police-recorded crime figures, in which many people derided me for saying that they were, how shall I put it, unreliable. But eventually, this position was vindicated mm. by the facts. And I, I, I'm saying it again. It looks to me very much as if we've been uh, subjected to un, unreliable interpretation of figures. And this still goes on. And it's used all the time to maintain the continued clamp 
uh, by the state on what was formerly our freedom. Mm. And until until people are prepared to confront this, and until particularly, as I say, people in, in, in the political and chattering classes who have not done their jobs in the past year have completely failed in their civic responsibility uh, to their country and to their fellow citizens, until they start doing this, we, we will continue to live in this awful situation where we live by permission of Mr. Alexander Pfeffel Johnson. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I thought of you a couple of times this weekend, once when... Um, the vote race was on, uh, where they've not only... I mean, it's a pretty good summation of the state of things, where there are two reasons why you can't have the boat race on the Thames. One, Hammersmith Bridge is apparently about to collapse into it, and so it's not safe to go underneath it. Secondly, uh, you can't have people standing on the side, and what they wanted to do was have it on the River Ouse uh, so that they could block off any access for people to actually stand and watch, in the open air, some people rowing. Then the rowers come out wearing masks, and then they're also the female rowers are all wearing yellow and white ribbons to to signify their support uh, of some kind of sexual abuse um, policy that's been uh, adopted in at Oxford University. Then this morning I was walking past King's College in London, where there's a new mural has appeared, which is like something out of North Korea and the Dear Leader, and it talks about how great the NHS is, and it ends with the question, "Who do you want to thank?" And I'm just thinking. This is not the London that I grew up in. No, it isn't, is it? And it, why don't they hold the boat race in the middle of the Atlantic? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, the Suez Canal, perhaps. Because the, yeah, the Suez Canal, there's plenty of room there. Uh, but yeah, or the Great Bitter Lake, uh, perhaps, would be the yes. ideal spot. It, it, it is, the, 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 the nonsense goes on and on. But yes, the, the level of propaganda and state worship, which is, is creeping in. And of course, yet again, this morning on BBC Radio 4's so-called flagship oh, yes. today program, uh, who should appear but Professor Ferguson? Oh, good! Uh, the man whose whose uh, predictions have uh, have plunged us into all this. The the the, the absolute king of the stochastic, mm. uh, and there he is again. I, the, there was a point when it looked as if people might actually begin to be a bit sceptical about him, but he has actually now become uh, a a respected figure. Mm. And we live in a country where Professor Neil Ferguson is a respected figure. I, I have to say, I find this rather worrying. Well, I'm, I'm afraid he's no, he's only respected in certain quarters, though. But these seem to be the people that are running everything. Well, they're big quarters. That's yeah. the problem. The, 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 you and I and, and numbers of others maintain a small, lighted circle of, uh, of intelligence, rationality and scepticism. But look at the opinion polls. Look at the behaviour of people as you walk in. The people who, who, who there you are out on, on, on the high hills in the in the brisk spring sunshine and a lovely breeze, and you go past somebody on your bicycle and they're wearing a mask mm. uh, and shying away from you in case you give them the plague. It's still fundamentally, it's still succeeding in terrifying people into into destroying their own liberty. And how do we stop it? I have no idea at all. It really is quite disturbing, isn't it? Let's talk about something else you wrote about this weekend, yeah. which I thought was interesting. Um, the policy on pornography. You, you sort of harken back to the days of Mary Whitehouse and how um, she was derided um, as, as a sort of a cookie figure, as many people were who were, you know, in those days trying to make sure that censorship existed in the sort of sexual um, freedom industry, if you like. Um, tell us about that. Well, it is, it, it's not just now. It's, Mary Whitehouse is still hated by quite large numbers of people in the, among the liberal elite. Uh, there was a, a fairly recent episode of, uh, I think, Endeavour, 
uh, the successor to Inspector Morse, in which a, a, an obvious Mary Whitehouse figure was it was caricatured quite cruelly and, mm. and made to look both stupid and nasty and, uh, and wrong. In fact, a lot of what she said, if you examine it now, had a, a lot of reason to it. And a lot of the things she predicted would happen have happened. And we have become a society in which pornography uh, has moved out from a few grubby backstreet shops and, uh, and, and seedy clubs, which you had to... Uh, in those days, make an effort to go to if you wanted that sort of thing into in, into complete generosity. So it, it takes absolutely no effort at all for anyone to go onto the internet and find all kinds of stuff, which mm. which in my childhood would have been regarded as uh, as illegal, obscene filth. And the beginning of this was the extraordinary case of the of, of, of the book Lady Chatterley's Lover, yes. which sorry, there were trial supposedly about obscenity. You know, can I ask you a question about the, the, this trial? Do you know how many prosecution witnesses there were? trial on the obscenity of Lady I Chatterley's don't, Lover. no. There weren't any. Right. There were no prosecution witnesses at all. Right. Everybody knows two things about it. One, uh, that uh, the, the, the book was, was permitted. And secondly, that uh, the, the prosecution lawyers asked whether people would be happy to let their wives or servants read it. Nobody knows anything about the case at all. I've actually read Lady Chatterley's Lover. And it's quite dull, isn't it? Essay about well, it's worse than dull. It's embarrassingly bad, including all the stuff about red trousers and, and lesbians and anti-Semitism. Right. If anyone tries to publish it now, they wouldn't get it past first base. Uh, it, it's, it's the ravings actually of, of, of a man on, on the edge of his reason. It's mm. complete drivel. But it was it was portrayed as fantastic literature uh, to try and uh, because it was being used as, as a as a battering ram to break down what were actually perfectly sensible obscenity laws. The interesting thing, the other thing, interesting thing about the trial is all the defence witnesses of the great and the good, who were asked to give their opinion. They, all, they had all read it in unexpurgated versions. It was perfectly possible for the liberal elite to nip across to Paris and buy copies and bring them back, and they did. Uh, the, it, King George V was supposed to have confiscated it from Queen Mary at some point in the 1930s. And it, it's not, it wasn't unknown. Well, the difference that was made by the trial was that, was that, was that pornography then became available to everybody uh, and it was it it it, it, it came first of all in, in, into the shops into, into magazines and then it came even more disastrously onto onto the internet where it is now flourishing and poisoning huge numbers of lives. What we were told at the time was this would be a great cleansing. Uh, everybody would become sexually healthy. The the whole business of hiding this stuff away in back streets bookshops would come to an end, and we we'd all be liberated and all be like the Swedes. Uh, it hasn't turned out that way at all. Now we have, quite rightly, people will be greatly dismayed about the, the sort of thoughts in the minds of young men in schools uh, and the sort of things that they say and, and say they want to do mm. and sometimes do do to, to young women are absolutely revolting and beyond belief. But where did this come from? It came from the explosion of pornography into our society, uh, which was uh, engineered by people who despised Mary Whitehouse and her warnings, and who all, it seems to me, have turned out to be completely wrong. Which of us really, particularly parents who know the sort of stuff that's coming out on the internet, which their children may read, which of us really actually thinks that it wasn't a mistake to liberate pornography mm. now? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Because it's 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 clearly another case of the kind of... Um, um, the so-called liberal elite not really quite understanding the criminal fraternity because what what most pornography now is is a criminal business and it's pe and it's run by people uh, who are rather unsavoury and who really don't care what your children are seeing as long as they're making money out of it. Well, exactly. It's it's, it's turning the human flesh into a commodity. It's not all that many steps above slavery in, 
violence in, in, in its wickedness. Mm. And in, in many cases, I think it probably involves slavery. If, if, if I think so. I think there's no doubt about that because there's now and there's also now apparently no way to stop it because anybody who you know who talks about the the, the original formation of the internet, which was meant to be free, a place where there was no uh, limits, no constrictions on anything at all. Um, because it would somehow police itself. Well, it clearly doesn't police itself, because if every time you try and stop something in one country, they just move to another. Well, that seems to be so, though I suppose if we if we had, which I would not want to have a government like China's, some way it might be found. But I don't think China has any particular interest in suppressing pornography. It's free speech they want to suppress. Yeah, exactly right. And in fact, even in China, I'm told by people who go there, uh, you can access parts of the internet they don't want you to anyway, because there's ways well, around can. it. It is true. It, is, it can. It, it gets increasingly difficult, and the Chinese state gets better and better at suppressing it. But uh, there are there are ways around it. But that doesn't mean there always will be. Mm. Initially, it was claimed when when all this began that it would be impossible to censor the internet at all. I think the the government in Peking has proved definitively that that was a wrong prediction. Mm, indeed. One final question for you, Peter, because we're nearly out of time. You know, the other thought I had was you've lived in Russia. Um, or the Soviet Union, I guess, before it was uh, dis- dis- dismantled. Um, I mean, I know this might sound slightly glib, but I mean, how much of what you had there and you experienced there are you seeing here, it albeit in a slightly watered down way? Well, it, when I was there, it was time of liberation. It was the, the, the end of the old regime and we, we, we were moving. Russia was moving from being a totalitarian, communist, dogmatic state to being, to, to, to being possibly a free country. I mean, right. What happened after? for many reasons a, a, a tragedy and a lost opportunity but so it was going in the opposite direction and I'd spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe before uh, I see a lot of things and have for some time seen a lot of things which are reminiscent of life in those countries of, of a dominant ideology of any one idea being acceptable mm. uh, of, of, of people being expected to be to be increasingly loyal to the state and as we saw on Good Friday in the, the Polish church mm. in Ballon a scorn for religion, which I have to say that I regard as one of the bulwarks against tyranny, mm. uh, because it, it it sets people under a different authority. The reason why totalitarian states hate Christianity is because it's a rival to them, and it puts people under a, under a wholly different authority, uh, in, in which they may well ignore the instructions of the totalitarian state. Mm. So I think that event on Friday, where, where police officers came into a, a church and prevented a church service, did send rather more shivers down my spine than quite a lot of other things I've seen in recent months. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Peter, delightful as ever to talk to you. Uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, enjoy the rest of Easter weekend. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday, columnist there. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Harvey Goldsmith, a man that uh, some of you younger people may not have heard of as much as I did, but he was a massive part uh, of the rock and roll business back in the 70s and the 80s, uh, and even later on through through Live Aid as well. Uh, Harvey, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. I'm still doing it, you know. I haven't retired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I realise that, but I just wanted people to understand that, you know, when, when I started going to concerts when I was a teenager, you know, you basically promoted all of them. Um, and uh, Concerts of Campuchia, I particularly remember, because uh, I got thrown out um, and I walked around the back of Hammersmith Odeon uh, with two yeah. of my mates, uh, ran into that pub in the back end and saw Rod Stewart. Yes. And Rod Stewart got us back in. Uh, and he said, come on, lads, you just come back in with me. It was just a wonderful time. And funnily enough, I was watching Sky Arts at the weekend and the, U- uh, the U2 show they've got on. Uh, and I was at the one at the O2 in London. And it's so weird now to look at a concert where there's so many people in the one place because we haven't done it for such a long time. 
We haven't. We've been uh, shut for a year and it's been a very painful experience, but that's the way it is. And we really are quite desperate to get back to work, to be able to entertain people, to allow people to come together, to enjoy themselves in the way that they did before. But yeah. it, it is, it is um, it's a difficult period of time to try and, and I, I have some sympathy for the government because they can't just open the doors and let it all happen. So they're currently doing some tests. Um, we thought that was going to be the end of it. But apparently after they've done the test, they're then going to do some real tests. So we're a bit of a long way off before we can get back to work. Yeah. I mean, this is this is this is the frustrating thing, Harvey, isn't it? Because the trouble with an awful lot of what the government says they're going to do, it then doesn't happen. Well, it doesn't happen in the way that we would like it to happen. Mm. And it's take, there's been a lot of confusion, which is, I think, unnecessary. I think there's still a lot of confusion. You know, we're going to talk about vaccines, passports and so on and so forth. I, I think as far as being a promoter is concerned and someone is presenting shows, not just in England, but all over the world, um, A, we want to get back to work. B, we want to get back to work where we can give the public who buy tickets, who want to go to shows, the confidence that they can go back to shows and be together with other people because that's the experience of it. And so we have to figure out a way of how do we make these venues safe? At the moment, or will be doing in, in the next few weeks, is to look at uh, either a vaccine passport right. to see if that works. I think we can go through that. I think it's important that um, we do create safe uh, havens for people to go and enjoy themselves. I don't want to take the risk. I think the problem, we're just cutting up and breaking up a little bit, Harvey. I think the problem for, for a lot of people um, is... The, is the conditions of, of those freedoms being returned because I've heard a lot of people saying to me well you know the thing is this is how we're going to get back to normal but if you're standing say for example in a field at the Reading Festival uh, having shown that you've got uh, the Covid vaccine or that you've had a, a test relatively recently but you're also wearing a mask and you can't stand very near anyone is that really um, any kind of return to normality? I don't know what normality is anymore. I'm not sure any of us do at this stage. All we as, as promoters and producers are concerned about is creating as safe a haven as possible for people to enjoy themselves. Yeah. I think um, the whole issue about the uh, vaccine passports and testing and all the rest of it has to be taken into consideration. I know it's an impediment and it's another burden, but if you knew that everybody inside a venue or even at an outdoor venue um, were like yourselves, you'd either had the vaccine or you'd or you'd been tested beforehand, then you at least you could enjoy the concert without worrying about, do I look at the next person? Is he going to breathe on me? Do I stand away from them? What do I want to do? I can't see any other way of us really trying to get back to some form of normality without those added additions. And as has been said many times, having a, a piece of data on your phone is no different from the Googles, Facebooks, and all those other 
horrible companies who have no more about you than you do 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Well, that, well, it, well, it is. It it's, is a bit, but it is a, but it is a bit different, Harvey, because the, the, this the, they're not using our our information to stop us from doing anything as such, as far as we know, anyway. And whereas this kind of information, which is going to be held by God knows who, who's going to have information on individuals who may or may not wish that to be the case. I mean, you know, you you have situations where you walk into. I mean, I've been. I went to see the Rolling Stones in 1989 at Wembley Stadium, supported by Black Uhuru. Um, and, I, and, and, you know, I got set upon by a bunch of Hell's Angels, you know, but nobody had said to me they wouldn't be there. And, uh, you know, you can't eradicate all risk. You could look next to, to the guy next to you. The guy next to you might um, be off his face on drugs, might attack you. I mean, you know, stuff happens, doesn't it? Stuff happens, yes. One of the issues we've got as an industry currently, which has not been solved, is the issue of insurance. Yeah. So whilst we have, we are unable to get any insurance against COVID whatsoever, I think the one thing that will help is to have this level of security, which will give confidence back to the public to go and, and, and enjoy events. Right. Uh, it is a long way to go. They are going to test it out. Some people will be upset about it. But I don't know anybody that doesn't want to be in a safe haven when they want to enjoy themselves. I just don't. And I really don't think it's that much of an impediment to have the proof to say so. Yes, but Harvey, the other thing that people worry about is it's all very well saying this is what we need to get back up on our feet and this is the beginning of getting back to normal. But when does it end? And how can you guarantee with whatever the government is doing that they will pull it later at some point down the road and they'll say it's not necessary anymore? Well, if you're, if you're of the mind that you don't believe in any of it and you think we should just be completely open and, as we've seen, open to infection, if you like, you're never going to believe anything. But if you're of a mindset that this is at least a way of helping us starting on the pathway to a new world, which is what we call normality, we don't know what the new normal is, and then eventually people will just carry on with it, you won't notice about it, I don't think it's a problem. I made this um, uh, analogy very recently on, a, on, a, on another call. I have for years had to carry a yellow card in my passport. That yellow card tells me of various inoculations that I, I have to have to go to various countries because I, I do shows all over the world. Yeah. So I have my hepatitis C uh, vaccine. I have my tetanus vaccine and all the rest of it. And in certain countries that you visit, you have to show them, otherwise they won't let you in. They, these part yellow passports have been around since 2005. What's the problem? Well, what that's, exactly but that, but that's, is it that But that's different, Harvey, because you're, but you're a businessman, Harvey, and you need to go to those countries in order to, to, to protect and to, and to do your business, right? If I want to go and see um, a band down the road, I don't see why I should have to prove that I'm healthy. There might be other people in there with other diseases that I'm not being that they're not being checked for. You don't really know that. And therefore, my worry about this government, it's not that I don't believe that the COVID exists. I'm not a COVID denier. I'm not somebody who would not take the vaccination. I'm not somebody um, who would not take precautions. You know, I'm very much with that. However, what I worry about is that this government has continually said that this is just for the short term and this is what we'll do. Look up in Scotland. I've got a friend, uh, you might know him, Donald McLeod, who runs the garage in Scotland. He's a promoter up there. He hasn't yeah. been able to open his nightclub 
for an entire year. He was given a yeah. small glint of light back in the summer when he was able to spend a bunch of money and convert it into a bar. Guess what? Two days later, they shut the bar and said no more alcohol sales. So, you know, people are very untrusting, I would say, of what this government's promises are. That may be the case, but nevertheless, we have to make a start. And the start at the moment is that whilst we are doing extremely well in in the UK with the vaccination programme and containing the virus, in Europe, it's a nightmare. And the reason why it's been a nightmare is because governments have been have allowed people to mix in a different way, to be open, etc. And it didn't work. So we have to conquer this virus. The virus doesn't really decide who it is or where it is or what it is. It just spreads. It's in, And because it spreads so virulently and violently and causes the damage it has, we're dealing with the position we are. Yes, but, so one, of, but least, one of the reasons, Harvey, that Europe has got it so bad right now is because their vaccination programme is so hopeless. Ours is much better. Therefore, there's a lot more true. people in this country who have got the, the antibodies. Um, but why should they have to prove it, is my point. Those people who haven't been vaccinated, for example, are younger, less at risk, and probably not going to get very ill if they get it anyway. Because don't forget, this is still a disease which doesn't kill most of the people that get it. Well, that's... That may be true as well, but it's certainly done enough damage. And unfortunately, there have been so many deaths globally as a result of this pandemic. I think what should happen is, is, is what the government are planning is to do these test events. There's about, I think, 12 or 13 test events that are taking place between now and the end and the, and the middle of May. They need to get the results of those tests analysed. If it's proven that those that have had the uh, shown a vaccine passport or have been tested before they've gone to the event but they of course they have to be tested after on their way out as well and those are clear clean events that people could enjoy themselves then at least it's a start point of a way forward at some point if there is any opposition to this government which is very weak at the moment they can then question how long the validity of these passports should be or indeed if they just become accepted. But they're not designed and they're not there for to kind of have a spy on your life or what you're doing. And quite frankly, if you've got something to worry about by having your data being... <laughs> that's not the issue. You've got a problem anyway. No, so Harvey, no, that's not the point. Here's what I would suggest to you, and you're a very influential man, and I want you to put this to the government, right? Here's what I would do. If you want to run a proper trial and a proper test, you do two shows. You do one show for a load of people who prove that they've either had a vaccination or a, po or a negative test, and then you do another show where then nobody's done that. And I bet you any money, the results will be the same. Well, my understanding is that's precisely what they're doing. So that's what we're waiting to find out. Right. We don't know the terms of what they're going to do with the, with, uh, on the protocols for this testing, but I was on a call last week with a guy in charge of it, and I got the impression that is exactly what they're going to do. They're going to divide the audience up or they're going to take one venue where they don't do testing, another one where yeah. they do, and they'll, then they examine the difference. They have to explore it. Otherwise, we'll never, ever get back off the ground and get working again. No, I get all that, Harvey. But let's face it. The reason why we are in this place 
is not just because there's a virus. It's because of the restrictions that this government has put on us because of the virus. For example, you know, there is no real proof that anybody in any massive numbers caught COVID from being in a restaurant or a pub. And yet people that own restaurants and pubs haven't been able to open them, even after they spent tens of thousands of pounds making them safe for people to go in. And I think, you know, I, I think if they do what you're suggesting, that's good because they need to compare apples against uh, apples. Don't they? they need to compare a, a COVID safe environment with one that isn't COVID safe. Because my belief yeah. uh, is that COVID basically does what it wants. It goes where it wants and it's and it sort of rises and falls as it wishes. And I'm not sure the government can do much about it. You may well be right, but I think we've got to start somewhere. Okay. So at least in this interim period, if if the government have set these tests up properly, they will be able to evaluate exactly as you've just described. Also, they've got to look at ventilation in indoor buildings because we're all talking about the summer, but our real business starts in September when the indoor season starts. That is most of our business, and that's just as important. And it is a facet. We've been if you like, dry for a year in terms of entertainment, in terms of mm -hmm. stimulation musically, in terms of going to the theatre and so on and so forth. And we do want to have it available to people, but in a safe way where they can enjoy it without looking over their shoulder and worrying. And when you've got these uh, COVID-safe trials going on, if you're in a, a venue, I know they're doing quite a few in Liverpool, you have to be Liverpool postcode holder and all of that, Will they be going into those venues as if they were doing it three years ago? Will they be going in um, in, in social distancing ways? Will they be wearing masks? What's, what, what are they going to be asked to do? I don't know. We've asked the question many times. They haven't exactly told us. Mm. They haven't worked, as far as I can see, they haven't worked the protocols out. If they have, they certainly didn't tell us last week when we asked them. And that is concerning. I'm all, I'm, I'm, I mean... I'm equally concerned about what government's been doing, why they've wasted all this time and mm. not having the protocols ready to test up till now so that we could open safely for the summer, why they're leaving it to the last minute to do this testing and evaluation where they, I pleaded with them to do it around about Christmas time, yeah. to do exactly what they're planning to do now, but it went on deaf ears. I think there's a huge amount of confusion out there we in, as an industry want to get back to work, but we want to do it safely. We don't want to find that shows that are on sale now for the summer suddenly have to be cancelled because of the results of the tests or whatever. They should never have been allowed to go on sale. And we have to instill confidence back into our audience that they can go and enjoy themselves. And as I keep saying, feel safe yes and i think an awful lot of young people do feel a lot safer um than perhaps people of my age i mean although i'm not one of those that doesn't feel safe but certainly you know we need to get it up and running uh, your organization's called we create experiences one industry one voice um if there's anything we can do to further your cause we'd love to do it um but i'm going to ask you one final question harvey and i know that you're still doing it so i don't mean you to take offense at all but what has been the greatest show that you ever put on oh dear <laughs> That's a tough one. I, you know, I suppose Live Aid was because it was such a different experience. Yeah. It, was, it was unique. But to me, the um, getting Led Zeppelin back together again for that amazing show in 2007 mm. was quite fantastic. And even coming up to today when I, I, I met, I was introduced to uh, 
to um, uh, to Hans Zimmer, and we managed to persuade him to go on the road when at 60 he'd never been on a tour in his life before wow. and we did a hundred concerts around the world and just completely blew people away of doing something new i'm always looking for something new and different currently i'm looking in the immersive theater world because i think that is the way forward to the future um of entertainment and i i, I think that there, there is so much out there is so much choice and so much opportunity that it will be a shame if it's just dampened down and dampened down that it doesn't work. No, exactly Socially right. Socially different events absolutely do not work. People want to be together. And that's even more reason because they want to be together and they want to all focus on enjoying the same experience. I talk about it is the reason why we want, as far as I'm concerned, safe events. I know in the club world, they're looking at this differently. They just want to open up and be open to everybody. But I have to say that if there is an outbreak in a club, um, everybody will be shut down because it's too open. So I do believe we need to think very carefully about it and try and at least give an opportunity to see if this system works. Okay. Harvey Goldsmith, thank you very much indeed uh, for taking the time to talk to us. He is, of course, UK's best-known rock promoter. You might not agree with him, but he knows a lot more about his business than I do, and he knows a lot more about the entertainment business than most people do. So what do you think? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 